Our text for this evening is Micah chapter 6, getting close to the end of our series here. Micah chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, my people. Remember how what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, Baor, of Baor, answered him. And from Shethim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. And what shall I come to the Lord, and how shall I bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord will call to the city and its sound will uh, wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time. Is there yet a man in the wicked house along with the treasure of wickedness and the short measure that is accursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongues is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. You, your violent, vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statues of Omri and the, all the wicked, all the works of the of house of Ahab are observed. And in their devices, you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for desolation. And you will bear the reproach of my people. So ends the reading of God's word. Um, I was talking to someone uh, a, long, a while ago um, before preaching the, the last sermon who saw the title was Victory, Vivication, and Vengeance. And um, uh, he was joking that maybe that was the, the, the uh, uh, title of some movie he hadn't seen because previous sermon was The, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which was an, another movie name. And uh, so oftentimes movies or pro TV programs somehow factor in as an illustration to my sermons. Well, I, I don't have one specifically this evening uh, that to, to refer, uh, but I'm guessing that almost n everybody here, or nobody, I should say, uh, the opposite way, almost nobody here 
unless there's some lawyers that, in, amongst us uh, or a judge. I don't. I'm not aware of uh, anyone here at Grace that, that has that job, but I'm, I could be wrong. But anyway, I'm, I'm guessing that m- that m- most, if not, if if <laughs> I keep on putting this backwards, but because uh, none of you or almost none of you have ever actually seen the inside of a court functioning, um, it, it because you probably haven't been on trial before. But in any case, so, so in any, if you actually are going to picture in your mind a courtroom, you're going to probably have to do so from something you saw on some TV or, or movie program. Now, when I was growing up way back in the 70s, I remember there was, there was Perry Mason, and then in the 80s it was Matlock, but that's a long time ago. Maybe you don't remember that. And there was, of course, there was, there was People's Court, you had Judge Wapner, and then it was taken over by Judge Judy, but I think even she is retired now, so it's like I don't know who's left um, that you might, uh, uh, that the young people might um, know. But anyway, it doesn't matter too much. This evening text, why, why, why did I mention this? Because in this evening text, we have a trial, and we're going to go into the trial room of, of God's justice. Um, so, Maybe uh, drawing on some image of Judge Judy isn't so helpful, but in any case, there is a trial. In this case, God is the plaintiff or the accuser. Israel is the defendant or the accused. Prophet Micah, something like the bailiff, and as strange as it might be, the mountains are the jury. What we have before us, what scholars call, is a covenant lawsuit. God is bringing a case against his covenant people, Israel. Now, it may be a strange image to think of mountains being the, the jury. I don't know how you, you fit that into a, a picture of a court that you're used to. But all the same, Israel is on trial for her sins. So we're going to look at the, God's charge Israel's rebuttal, rebuttal, and then finally God's response to that. So in verses 1 and 2, we hear the summons. Of course, that's what you do before you, you bring someone to the court. You issue a summons, right? In the previous chapter, we, we saw how foreign nations were going to invade Israel. And in the last chapter, while there was hope the Messiah from Bethlehem was, was given, it was a hope to be given to those who are faithful in the land as they are being swept off into captivity, to be purged of sin. Now in this chapter, God is setting the record straight in regard to Israel's sin and answering the objection that anything that he is doing to Israel is in some way arbitrary or unjust. Scene opens in verses 1 and 2 with the Lord issuing a summons to Israel to make its case before the mountains. Now it's a curious, as we mentioned before, that God would call upon the mountains to be the jury. Why do we have this image? Well, commentators differ on the exact reason for this or what exactly it means. Some suggest that the mountains themselves could testify to the idolatry of Israel because that's where Israel had its high places. You know, you read through the Old Testament, frequency reference the, these high places. They would go up on whatever highest point that they could find and they would build their uh, places of worship there. Um, you can still, many religions today, um, they still have similar kinds of practices. If you're up there, you're closer to the gods. So maybe these mountains could testify to Israel's 
uh, sinfulness in that way. Others suggest the mountains are simply a metaphor for other nations of the world that could look into onto scene. Still others suggest that um, they can bear witness uh, because of their age of everything that has transpired in the nation of Israel, that they, they have seen God's goodness to Israel and they have seen uh, Israel's sin. Uh, my inclination is to agree with Calvin who suggested that the wickedness of Israel is so blatant that even the dumb mountains would be able to judge that, in fact, Israel was guilty. Well, maybe more of a combination of one of these things, I don't know, but, w- but what is clear is that <laughs> the, even from the beginning, that they were, the jury was going to find Israel uh, guilty. Then uh, verse 3, uh, the Lord, uh, per, per, comp- uh, the prophecy here, uh, the Lord uh, begins to ask Israel what he has done to provoke Israel's response of, of rebellion against him. Verses five, 4 through 5 list several events in Israel's history where the Lord demonstrated his love and his care for his people and bringing them out of Egypt and giving them leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam and turning Balaam's curses into blessing. And it talks about his providential care. He, God took care of them as they traveled from Shechem to, to Gilgal. So in, in this passage, as he is gone, is relating this history to his people, he's speaking sort of like as a, as a, as a rejected spouse, half weeping and half infuriated over the treatment that he has received from his unfaithful wife. So this is really a very emotional or emotionally charged set of verses here in which God is crying out and says, why, why have you done this? As as he interrogates her, why have you you gone after these other gods? Why do you not have any affection for me? Why do you have to run after idols? Have I not shown my goodness and love to you ever since you left Egypt? How in the world have I burdened you? What is it that is provoking you to want to have these other gods? Please answer me. Give me an answer as to why it is that your affections are focused on others. Now, after God challenges Israel on this matter and, and, and interrogates her, how would you think that Israel responds? Is it with weeping? over her own sin and unfaithfulness? Does she cry out repentance over this sin and plead for forgiveness and to be reconciled with God? No, here Israel essentially plays dumb. She turns around to the plaintiff, to her Lord, and in essence returns with the line of interrogation herself. She says, okay, Lord, sort of paraphrasing here, okay, Lord, yes, okay, 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 so all right, what do you want us to do next? What will it take to make you happy? Well, how about this? Uh, will you accept a burnt offering? Will that work? Maybe one of a very valuable, a very valuable one-year-old calf. That's a, that's a pretty big gift. Well, how about a thousand rams? We, we'll, we'll up the ante quite a bit there. Or even better, ten thousand rivers of oil. Or dare you say it? All right, you know. Maybe that don't, isn't good enough. You know, high price. Okay, fine. We will even offer you the human sacrifice of our firstborn child. You name it, Lord, and we'll give it to you. 
It's not our fault you're upset. You just haven't told us what it is that you will make you happy. What is it that will get you off our backs? Israel speaks here like she is ready and willing to do whatever it is that God wants Israel to do. Speaks in very self-reliant terms as if, hey, we're pious people. We, we, we get it. Okay, fine. We maybe did something wrong. So what, what is it that you want? What's your price? What do you want from us? We are religious people. Now, the irony, as we continue on, verse 8, is, the, is that Israel is just demonstrating all too well the fact that she is not really willing to do that which the Lord really wants from Israel. From one thing, the Lord has from the beginning revealed to Israel what he desires from his people. And the fact that Israel plays dumb here only accentuates the fact that they are guilty. Micah in verse 8 says, in effect, Oh yes, the Lord has certainly shown you what is good and what it requires of you. So he's saying to Israel, don't, don't pretend like you don't know what the Lord wants of you. He has told you all along. You, need to, you should know this. Don't talk like you don't know. Of course, it sounds like this conversation we've had with our kids before, doesn't it? Something a little bit like that. In any case, it says, The Lord, what does he desire? He desires that Israel walk humbly with him. If the Lord, that Israel acts as if the Lord can be bought off by their heartless, ritualistic worship, as if he were a cosmic prostitute who sells his affections for the mere price of, of earthly sacrifices. The Lord says that Israel should love kindness, and yet they stand willing to kill an innocent child, an unwilling victim, in order to purchase for themselves the comfort of the Lord protecting themselves from them, their enemies. The Lord requires that they do or make a regular practice of justice, and yet they have no real concern for it, for if they did, they would see their own guilt before the Lord and see what God demands of, that, of them, uh, of them before, because of that, that they are under his judgment and they would repent from their wicked ways of oppressing the poor and with violence, speaking lies, and using unjust scales and measures to steal. The Lord wants Israel to desire and love the things of God, justice and kindness. And in desiring these things, desire the sovereign Lord himself above all things. And therefore, walk humbly with him. But Israel speaks like a, a woman who desires the financial support and protection of her husband, but has no real desire for the husband himself. And so she's quite willing to pay the husband whatever he feels like for his services as long as she can continue to run after her other lovers. It's like they say, well, it's wonderful, Lord, that you brought our nation out of Egypt and you gave us leaders and turned these curses into blessings. Well, this is great. We love the gifts, but we really have no love for the giver. So tell us, Lord, what, 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 do, you, what do we owe you? And we'll be on our way. We're honest men. We'll pay your price. Now, as we go through these things and think about what Israel's saying, as horrible as all this sounds, how often is it that those who fill the pews of churches, maybe even ourselves, are not so different? How often do we think in a similar way? We, we say to the Lord sometimes, we acknowledge that you, you made me, that 
I need you, and even maybe thy sin deserve punishment, and you saved me and all that. Okay, so I'll give you my Pledge of Allegiance. I'll confess your name. I'll come to worship on Sunday. I'll sing your songs. I'll pay my tithe, maybe even 11%, just to make sure you're okay. I'll do what the elders say so I don't get excommunicated. I'll obey my parents enough to keep out of trouble. Pay my tithe for being a Christian. Is that enough, Lord? I'm forgiven, right? So what else do I do to thank you, right? But let me ask you, do you love the Lord? Do you delight in him? Is the opportunity to look in the Lord's word and hear his praises sung cause your heart to jump for joy like the heart of a new bride at the sound of her husband returning from a long day's work? Or are you simply trying to buy off your husband and acknowledge that did something for you, but you don't really have any real interest in him any longer? Now, at the one hand, I'm not much for gimmicky approaches to the Christian faith, but let me offer you this challenge. I suppose you wouldn't have to, to really do this literally. I mean, you could just do it in your imagination, but... Walk up to a mirror, look yourself in the eye, and ask this question, or actually say these words. Yep, you can ask it the question depending on how you do it, but look at yourself in the eye and say, I love you, Lord. And ask yourself, do you really mean it? Do you really love your Savior, Jesus Christ? Is that what your life is about? Or are you really a fraud? Maybe you have sung the praises uh, from, from Psalm 73 that goes, There's nothing on else in heaven I desire besides you. The Lord is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. But is he genuinely the strength of your heart? You know, there's, a, if you, there's a verse, another verse in the Psalms that says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, some of the health and wealth gospel kind of folks say, Oh, see, see here's this formula. You know what? The desires of your heart, like a Ferrari, well, all you have to do is, you know, delight yourself in God, and then you'll get it, right? But that's a totally backwards understanding of what that psalm is talking about. If you delight yourself in God, what's the de desire of your heart? It's God himself. So if, it, if you delight yourself in the Lord, well, then certainly then you will have what you desire. So let me ask you, are you looking for something in heaven to come besides God himself? Where, where, where is the delight of your heart? Do you delight, desire to be in heaven, your portion forever, because that is where you'll see Jesus? Or do you earn for a heaven where you can eternally enjoy the delights of your early earthly idols and, and worldly pleasures here on earth and are simply willing to pay for this with outward worship of the one you call God. It was clear in this passage that Israel wanted the latter and not God. And of course, remember, these, these folks, these Israelites, they call themselves children of God as well. They were children, uh, worshipers of Yahweh. They were, wor they were the children of Abraham. And they, yet they fell into such sin. So we go back to our text. Go back to this courtroom in verses 9 through 16. The verdict is delivered. 
Verse 9 summons those in the courtroom, which is Jerusalem, to listen and take heed of the rod and the one who appointed, or to pay attention to the bar of justice and the Lord who has established it. In verses 10 and 11, the Lord asks the following questions. Am I to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah, which is a curse, ways of cheating people um, by using false measures? Shall I quit a, a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? The Lord is asking, how is it that he, being a just God, could forgive the dishonest Israelites? As God is asking, how can you ask a just God as myself to forgive you on the basis of offering up that which is already mine? How can I forgive you when your rich men are violent, your people are liars, and your tongues speak deceitfully? The answer is that justice must prevail, and there must be a guilty verdict. Verses 13 through 16, we, we see uh, uh, the sentence. Verse 13 and 15, first of all. Uh, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but serve nothing. Because what you, what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil on yourself. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. Now, while it's clear that God is actively bringing judgment upon Israel, that there are things that he is very much entering into history to, to, to bring about upon Israel, yet at the same time, there is a, a logical connection uh, between what it, the sin and the consequence, the, the natural results of idolatry. It says you will eat but not be satisfied. You will store but not save. You will plant but not harvest. Those being brought in judgment sought satisfaction in these things that weren't God's, and the result was, as they tried to do that, they weren't going to be satisfied by them. And as true as it was for Israel, it's also true for you. If you seek your joy, your satisfaction, you put your, 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 your desire, your love, and if you desire salvation from Ibel, well, that's all you get in return as, an, as a stone statue. The things of this world just don't satisfy Seeking this, these things for the pleasures of the world, you will only receive momentary titillation, but you'll continue to hunger in your inmost parts. And this will continue until, like the nation of Israel, in verse 16 says, you're given over to ruin and destruction and to the eternal contempt of hell. As the people of Israel did not want God, they did not receive him. Neither will you receive God if you do not desire him. And so this sentence, in a way, is for you as well. But the way which is good that is spoken of in this passage, the way that's good for you, the way to true joy, to true satisfaction, and the knowledge that you have pleased the Lord and done what it, the Lord requires of you is to love the Lord and obey his ways, to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. If your love and your desire, the Lord and his ways and his attributes are for your own life, then God will bless you by giving you those things. These things mean being loving to be kind to others and delighting to see people blessed as a result of your ministry to them. This means dealing with your neighbor in a fair and equitable manner and desiring to see uh, that others are dealt with in a similar manner. It means helping the poor, the sick, and the needy, and comforting the oppressed and the widow. It means recognizing that God, the awesome sovereign king of the universe, is wonderful and is worthy to be praised. He is high and mighty, and therefore you must walk in a humble manner with him. You must delight in it, not simply do these things to pay off God for the things that you, you really want. 
But going back for a moment, the Lord asked his people how he has wearied them, that they would forsake his ways, to turn to idols, to the poor justice and kindness that he had shown, and he showed his love and mercies again and again to them, bringing them out from Egypt and giving them leaders to, to keep them from wandering and turning curses of their enemies into blessings. He, he had every reason, had done every, he had given them every reason to love and adore him because of his tender care for him and to believe that he would continue to bless and love them by saving them again and again. He had been a perfect husband to Israel, and yet they ignored all the blessings that had been given them and turned them into idols. Now, if the Lord is angered by those who fail to recognize how worthy he is of their worship and adoration because of all these physical blessings and deliverances that he had given to Israel, how much more you who call yourself Christians anger the Lord if you do not recognize his worthiness of your love in displaying the deliverance of his people in offering up Christ, his only begotten son, for the salvation of all who believe in him. How much more if you are not a true believer in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews 2, 3 says in this regard, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? But remember, as we examine ourselves and we look at our hearts, we, we see so much of this is true of ourselves and how we have failed to walk humbly with God, to love the things of God, that we have our hearts have been cold. We have just not had passionate and love for our God and the things of God. And yet Christ has secured eternal life for his people in spite of their sin, for in spite of your sin. The Bible reminds you that you're often like these Israelites, you're attracted to idols and don't love Christ as you ought. And yet, God forgives us in Christ. The way that he's good, ultimately, that this passage speaks of is Christ himself. He worked a perfect life of justice and kindness and walking humbly with God. We often fail in this regard. Every day we do so. And yet we have a Savior, Jesus, who has walked in this way perfectly for us. And so he ultimately is the way that is good. We cannot trust in ourselves to change our hearts, that we have this love for God, and, and we, we can't love God enough in order to, to be saved. We've already sinned. And so praise be to God that Jesus has obeyed for us and become the way of good for us. Praise be to God that, that the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us from our own lack of love and sincerity. He's taken our verdict for us, this verdict in this passage, and given eternal life to his people. But don't be content to content yourself to wallow in sin and idolatry, but eagerly desire to seek deeper fellowship with the Lord that you might know all the more the wonders of the God who has redeemed you from the pit by his wonderful grace. Seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit and know more fully what it means to walk humbly with God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we come before you uh, confessing that often our hearts are lukewarm, that we lack genuine love and passion for your gospel, that we are attracted to all the things in this world, 
and do not worship you. That we come to worship oftentimes to simply check a think off my list of things to do in the week in the hopes that I'll be good enough for you to accept me. Father, Lord, we confess these sins. And we pray, Lord, that you would wash us of these sins that we might truly love you and follow you and walk humbly with you. Oh, Lord, don't allow us to live in our sin, but fill us by your Holy Spirit with your love, a passion for for the things of God and for you. Use us to accomplish your will in this world. Help us to obey, to walk humbly with you, to love the things of God that you might be glorified in. Oh, Father, we have no strength to do these things of ourselves, and so we plead that you would give us grace to do so. And we have great hope because you have given us Jesus Christ that you will hear and answer our prayers. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.